This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How are you? I'm great. Um, I'm really excited to introduce you to a, kind of a, a, a great photographer, a friend of mine, Doug Menue. This is Suzanne. Suzanne, Doug. Hi, Good morning. Doug. Hi. Good morning. How are you? Um, it's good to see you too, Michael. Um, thank you. It's great to see you. Um, I wanted to just introduce you a little bit to our audience. Um, you are an unbelievable photojournalist. And um, and I think the thing I wanted to say most, uh, you're known for covering the sort of the birth and explosion of Silicon Valley starting in the 80s. Um, and I want to say as a collector of photography... Um, there are certain classic photos in civilization, you know, Margaret Brooke White's pictures of Gandhi or, you know, Cartier-Bresson shooting Martin Luther King's rally. And I swear your pictures of the creation uh, with Steve Jobs are among those pictures. They are going to be part of the the history of photography forever. And it's just wonderful to know you like i'm kind of I'm a little I'm <laughs> we have a little to, emotional we have, right now. <laughs> we have to end this interview right now while i go and recompose myself <laughs> but you know listen i'm grateful so grateful because we all want to reach our audience you know you work hard to make these images that connect with people so i'm i'm hugely flattered and i'm really moved by that beautiful thank uh, you compliment and i mean obviously um i try to stay humble because whenever i don't <laughs> and God crushes me like a bug on the windscreen. <laughs> but that was a pretty good compliment. Thanks, Michael. Well, nice. Well, you are an amazing photojournalist. And, um, but one of the things, I mean, I think people can tune into some of your great talks about Fearless Genius or about some of your new work. But I, our audience are, sorry, our audience are consumers. They're just people with iPhones. And so a lot of what I want to talk to you about is just your relationship to photography, you know, and, mm -hmm. and how you feel about it. And mm -hmm. I suppose the first thing I'd, I'd just like to ask you is, um, well, actually, so many things. You resist calling yourself an artist. I've noticed, <laughs> like, you, you say you're a visual storyteller. What is that? Uh, I went back to artists today on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who isn't conflicted in the visual yeah. creative world, right? You know, this is a therapy issue. But no, I mean, since I was 10 years old, I wanted to be an artist. I was studying painting and would go to the Museum of Modern Art and look at Matisse and Picasso. And then I discovered photography. My father gave me a camera and also The Concerned Photographer, the beautiful book with the Magnum photographers, when I was 12. So... I knew that was my my medium, and I embraced it. And I think in photography as I was growing up, it wasn't considered art. You know, mm. and I went to art school, and it was always suspect. And the big issue was really came down to collector valuation because you could make multiple prints. It wasn't the object. So I internalized this conflict in the world. I mean, when I was around 10 or 11, Avedon's print of Princess Borghese was accepted 
in the collection, the permanent collection. It was the Museum of Modern Art, and it was a big scandal because he was, in the Times, they described him as a commercial photographer. Mm. And so, you know, this is a never-ending thing, but I do feel like I've always wanted to be an artist. I went to art school. Oh, the way I talk about it now is as a documentary photographer working and telling stories, I basically am saying this is a subjective truth. This is how I see it. And no one can tell me they can be truly objective. You know, I, I worked for the magazine's Time and Life and Newsweek, and I saw a lot of occasions where objectivity was not in play. It's just mm -hmm. so hard. So I think what I think an artist does is they feel compelled to express something within themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do visually through the camera. And thanks for letting me explain. <laughs> but <laughs> you, you, I go back and forth. You talk a lot about <clears throat> you've managed to create a balance that few have between being an artist and being a commercial photographer. How do you do that? Like, how do you not fall too deeply into one side or the other? Well, you know, another way that I access this is through Andy Warhol, who said, art is whatever you can get away with. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, really see, I really feel like there's the question that you're asking is, how do you reconcile the work that you feel called to do that gives you passion, that you're passionate about, that gives you joy, mm -hmm. and the work you must do to make a living? And there is a lot of misconceptions about the latter in terms of how you get it. And I figured out, I guess in the late 90s, after being a photojournalist for a long time, and then the change that was happening in advertising was they were looking for authenticity. The audience was looking for more authenticity. It was shifting from aspirational, get this Porsche, you can be groovy, to, oh, that experience I can relate to, maybe this is a really good product. I saw that as a, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that was an important cultural shift as the audience became hip to being manipulated. I think it was partly the digital revolution. Anyway, I just saw an opportunity there and I thought it was a chance actually to kind of go back to art school in that I could reconcile the conflict by defining myself in the commercial space. This is what I do. This is how I see you can exploit that. You can use me uh, to a certain amount. I can useful for you but this is how it is i shoot i don't change my eye or how i shoot which mm -hmm. was the thing a lot of times people would get hired because of their name and then in the commercial project they would have them shoot something completely um you know antithetical to what they stood for so it was always horrible but they did it for the money so i decided i wanted to wake up in the morning and be a photographer whether i was taking pictures of my kid or i was doing a commercial assignment or a commission to do a portrait of someone or uh, long-term documentary project. So that was how I did it. Do you um, do you have uh, any issues with photo manipulation tools like Photoshop? Like, where do you draw the line? Is there a line? Will you photo manipulate anything, or do you not manipulate? Or what's okay? Sorry, that's the question. This is, what's this, okay? This is such an important question, and it's also cyclical. And you know, when I was starting out on newspapers in the seventies, um, we would hear stories about photographers in the forties using pencils to change pictures and then transmitting them. I heard stories in the 60s, people doing that. And even in the 70s, people were, they were manipulating photographs here and there. People were cheating, if you will. We took an oath. I remember the MPPA, the MPPA had a, uh, a manifesto you had to sign or you had to read to be a member that you would always tell the truth. You wouldn't manipulate your photos. Um, but then, you know, 
uh, one of my greatest influences and inspirations was a photographer named W. Gene Smith. And Gene Smith was the father of the photo essay, more or less, in Life magazine. He was the king of that. And when I was 17, I actually got to meet him and hear him talk and then show him my work. And it, one of the things he talked about was he wasn't ashamed of having moved people towards the window. He wasn't ashamed of having sandwiches negative. It was like, you know, it's sacrilege that he would manipulate. But he made a very clear point that he felt that he was an artist. He had a letter from Angela Adams saying he was an artist. She read. <laughs> a certified. <laughs> a certified certification. <laughs> he wanted that validation, it seemed. And he really believed that it was the truth as he saw it. And that was the best he could do. That's how he did it. So I always had that in my mind. And then jump forward from uh, that to being an intern at the Washington Post. And in the darkroom, we all had a little vial of potassium ferrocyanide, deadly poison, next to our fixer, so that when we were finishing our prints, or in the developer, we could bleach and highlight certain areas more than we could if we were dodging. So we were dodging and burning. All newspaper photographers were doing that because you had 60-line screens. Right. You could barely see the photo anyway. So you're trying to make lights and darks to move your eye. Your eye goes to the lightest area of the picture. This is a really important point for all your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this is the law of physics here. I will go to the lightest area. So that's where you want to have the emotional impact. That's where you want to have the center of interest, right? Huh. And and if it's light around the edges, your eye just flies right off and you're on to the next thing somewhere else. You're gone. Hence so vignetting, we were, right? Like hence somewhere. vignetting. Right. Hence vignetting. And it's a way to move the user's eye without them realizing it. So it's always been about manipulating the viewer's uh, response and being able to see the information clearly and quickly. Now, has that been abused? Yeah, there's been so much, so much. And uh, with Photoshop, you, you know, I guess the, the short answer would be, if you want to cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> no. The short, the short answer would be, as Russell Brown famously said when he was being attacked, when Photoshop was being productized, hey, this is a hammer. With this, you can build a house or you can tear it down. Mm-hmm. It's now, just a tool. You know, I, I heard him say, we talked to him the, last week, and um, he <laughs> said that exact thing. But Did I don't, <laughs> but it's not. But it's not, I'm not sure I totally agree with that, because to abdicate all responsibility, like whatever you make with this is, what, we're convincing people of something. You know, people absorb, it's like a, a, a chemical <clears throat> that goes through the blood-brain barrier. Like it gets to sneak through, and you perceive it as truth. And as an artist, of course... Your truth, you know, you're communicating your truth. But as a journalist, of course, you're supposed it's to real. be sort of have objective objectivity. But we know no ph photograph is objective. It's 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 a fallacy from it's from the premise, right? But, but Ruben, does it, does it, does it go, I was just going to. Does it also depend on kind of the 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 moral standards of the person making it? Like the, with the hammer reference, is that person is either going to build something or they're going to like tear it down and it's what they're intending to, to do with it. If you have every intention of trying to, to fool people, that's what you're bringing to that. And it's hard for the audience to have to like to decipher that. It's But it's kind of wrong on, the, on that person's uh, intention of like, I want to fool people with photojournalism. That seems wrong. So, but if so, you're making art... Suzanne, Doug, the, the famous picture from National Geographic where they moved the pyramids slightly to fit it under vertical format... You have any issue with that? Is that okay? I 
will decline comments on that, but I would say this. I, I want to go back to when I said the way behind my statement of Russell's about the hammer, the tool, this being a tool, was an assumption that we have a social contract that we will use it for good, to Suzanne's point. Journalists work really hard to get at the truth, and this is not respected today in America, obviously. Yeah. And I, I really feel like this is a sacred trust that the creators and the writers have to have with their audience to make this it's a social contract so yes yeah yeah i feel like that's what what we have to remember and that means you got to make an effort to keep that contract on both sides it's a meeting of the minds and digital technology has weakened that contract because people don't know what to trust mm -hmm. nice. and if it's and and by the way the cover of a book or a magazine it's got two seconds to catch your eye and sell you and it's more of an ad than it is editorial content. So I'm confused myself about where the lines should be drawn for that. I technically would prefer not to change anything for a journalistic publication ever. But there's, you know, I am a person who lives with gray areas. I refuse to see everything as black and white. One of the things you learn in journalism, you go out and you get both sides of the story, and then there's five sides to the story. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. You're famously a user of the Leica camera. And of course, it's a, a beautiful camera. How do you feel about iPhone smartphone photography? Do you take pictures with your smartphone? What, what, what do you think about that stuff? Does the, te does the device matter? I, I, I love that a billion smartphones came online last year and that unleashed untold amounts of human creativity with that camera. I salute Mariko Borogov and her team at Apple who sweated bullets to really make that camera sing and transform the world. I think that um, having a camera in my phone, it's like Chase Jarvis said, the best camera is the one you have with, with you. <laughs> so I freaking count on this camera. I love this camera. And I love my Leicas. And the Leicas are astonishing me every day because they are... Um, they they put nothing in they don't need so it it's re-energized re me by forcing an original discipline of what photography was to me a lot of the craft is um brought to the fore and it also leverages my brain in a way that other cameras don't because the menus and the user interface is so sweet and so clean and so clear that I can actually use the features of the camera. Previously, I would ignore all the many, many options mm -hmm. because it, I could never remember where those things were in the nested menu. <laughs> and you have to do it fast. Like and your you have job to do it fast is... or you miss the freaking picture. So right. I would hand it to my assistant and say, where's that thing? Find that thing. <laughs> and then I would use the other camera until he found it and hand it to me. That's not it. <laughs> <laughs> so this camera, I, my assistant said to me the first day we used it, we were shooting a hackathon. Um, or maybe this was the second time I used it. it we, this is the Leica SL. And he came to me, uh, it was a 48-hour shoot, and he came to me in the middle of that, and he said, you know, is there something wrong? I said, no, what's the matter? He goes, well, you're only shooting half as much as you always do. I was like, what? And I went to look at the material, and I was like, oh, it's better. <laughs> <laughs> and we kept more selects, and we shot half as much. So oh, That's great. You know, I, I feel like the tool, like we say, like I said in my one of my videos, it's not, we always say it's not the camera, it's the photographer's eye. But, hey, if that tool is um, a good match for your brain and how you work, 
by all means, that's going to increase your chances of getting better pictures and be a better photographer. So you have to find the right tool for you. Yeah. I, can you take... Oh, wait, can I ask one more follow-up on sure, that? Sure, sure. Which is, I'm afraid of a Leica. Like, I keep going to the Leica store, and I pull them out, <laughs> and I hold them, and I sort of fetishize this thing. It's It just feels so good. It's like having a slide rule or a, a, a great device in your hand that's perfectly tooled. I'm terrified. Half of my pictures, I'm standing in the waves. I'm like, it's raining on me. And I think I would be too concerned about this beautiful, expensive, precision device getting destroyed. (laughs) And I prefer having kind of a beater for being out in the world. Am I I stupid? I buy used stuff all the time. And by the time I get through with something in two years, it's already the brass is rubbed off and it's already a beater. I just think there's you know, I haven't been in love with a camera since I was like 14, but what a joy when you do fall. I fell in love with this, but I still don't treat it any differently than a hammer. Mm-hmm. It's my tool. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe I treat it a little bit better than the ones I <laughs> had <laughs> previous cameras, but not much, you know? And I feel like they have to be built to, they are. I mean, this is the beauty of these. You can use these for photography or as a weapon. You know, they're so well made. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of think you have to let go of that. That is a fetish. That is an objectification of the tool. But, you know, if it's, if it helps, buy used stuff, buy beat up stuff already, get a good price, then you won't feel worried about it. Because I think a lot of people who are new or who are not coming at it from a professional point of view, who have having to run down the street with their cameras banging together with a mob chasing you, you know, you get over that part mm-hmm. of, oh, this is a really special thing. You get over the money because you don't think about the money. You just think about the cameras. I, I appreciate people who take care of their cameras. And I know a lot of professionals who are really meticulous with it. They typically are not news photographers <laughs> who are in the Sahara <laughs> or at the North Pole or whatever. It's just hard to do that. And you just buy a new one if it, gone you know speaking of running down the street i was watching one of your leica videos and um it struck me as you don't do like photo walks as much as photo runs like you (laughs) (laughs) are chasing after the action that you see mid-interview to get the shot can you talk a little bit more about just being willing to improvise like that (laughs) i can't really it's just things happen and you have to react i mean your train our training is to uh get that picture no matter what and it's so hard and they're so fleeting it's so hard everyone <laughs> is a miracle every single frame that works is a miracle from god you know so i make i can't explain it other than i'm just obsessed you know i'm just trying i'm trying really hard and and i'm failing you know 95 percent of the time i'm failing okay so that's why I it's such a miracle when you get the yeah. shot but you're judged yeah. by the five percent dude you know the five percent are stu- are stellar so it doesn't matter how many times you miss you know? <laughs> yeah but i think that's a good point though i think if you practice this sort of zen approach of being in the moment don't look at the histogram don't worry about the lcd and if you want to be a good street photographer you really have to have your head on a swivel and you have to feel things and just get in tune with where you are and after a while things will come to you it's a universal law do you know when you take that shot like i got it if you do you didn't get it unless you're (laughs) shooting a mirrorless camera because the thing is is that the mirror was always up at the millisecond so when i was shooting hard news or, or sports if i if i was really happy oh and then i would realize oh 
you know, I was a millisecond late. <laughs> and then, you, then you process the film and you find out the truth. And, you know, there's a, there's a really good book about Pulitzer Prize photos. And you can see they put side by side. The, there's like 10 photographers at an event shooting the same thing. And the one that got the Pulitzer is just a millisecond later than the one that's the photographer to the left. Somehow it resonates more with the viewers. Mm -hmm. So with the mirrorless camera, you do see it, but it's also going so fast, you're, you're really not sure. I think what I, I think I would say 99% of the time I'm right when I think I got it. Do but you, you don't really know for sure. How do you think about, um, I mean, a lot of what you're describing sounds like uh, timing, right? To getting that right instant. And I, of course, that's an important part. But the other part is composition. How do you think about composition? Is it a natural thing? Is it just filling the frame with pieces? Can, can it be taught? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> if you got the answer, we'll keep recording. I was having dinner when we were living in Woodstock at our house with Dennis Stock, the great magnum photographer, shot James Dean and all those beautiful cultural pictures he did. Rodney Stock worked with me back in, in the day at Lucasfilm. <sighs> Yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. Oh, what a small world. Anyway. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Dennis, we're sitting at this very table, which is uh, <laughs> our old dining room table. And um, we were having an argument about contemporary fine art photography. I was on the board at the Center for Photography, and Dennis was uh, a supporter. And he was feeling like modern contemporary photography was just total bullshit. And the reason was, it's the composition and da 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 And I said, well, Dennis, rules are made to be broken. And he slammed the table. Bullshit. Do you want your pictures to be memorable? I was like, well, yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> well, exactly so. And he said, well, go back to the 20th century favorites, your favorite pictures that stuck with you, that you love the most, that changed your life. And you will see in every single one of those pictures, Aristotle's golden mean expressed. I don't buy it. I went back and he was 100% right. No, come 100% on. 100% right. Go look at the golden mean. Anyway, I still believe rules are made to be broken, and if it works, it works. Like, there are some contrary things you can do. But here's my next point. When I was doing that study, it occurred to me to ask the question, why does still photography even exist today with this video-centric world? And this was about 2007 when mm -hmm. we were having this discussion, and I thought... It was the time where everyone was telling you, you have to shoot video and stills at the same time. I'm like, impossible. But why? You know, and stills were going down, videos coming up, and, you know, people have much more engagement on sites with video, da, 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 da. But why does this still persist? Why is it still here? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I started to realize that I was remembering a dream. And I think we think of dreams as like movies. And I was remembering a dream, and it came down to this moment in the dream that actually translated as, like, a scene, a frame from the dream. And my mind was filling in what had happened before, and I remember what happened after, but I was fixated on this one scene, and then I tried to think about what came next, and it was another scene in my when I really concentrated on this, really deeply, uh, meditated on it. And then I thought about films, and when I remembered films, I'm remembering also scene, 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 which is frame, frame, frame. And we tend in science to recreate biology over and over and over. In the history of science fiction and science, we are constantly recreating. That's what we're doing right now with AI. We're trying to recreate the brain. Okay, what if the still photograph is the perfect data set for absorbing information for our brains? You know, you open your eyes and everything's upside down and black and white. 
and then it becomes color. You're, you're scanning for fight or flight, right? And then you start, your brain fills in, and we're actually only seeing a percent, small percentage of what's really there. Our brain can't accept all the data. Mm-hmm. What if that's still, okay, so if I'm right about that, and by the way, I've talked to brain scientists, and there isn't a lot of research. You can't really go online and find out easily how visual memory is formed. We know where a lot more about it now than we did when I started this query because I hired a researcher and I couldn't find anything about visual memory. We've learned a lot about all kinds of memory, but we still don't know a lot about visual memory. We know enough to know kind of where it is, but not how it's formed and not this theory. So what if I'm right? That means composition matters a hell of a lot <laughs> because it makes, it makes the picture sticky. All right? Next question. <laughs> sticky, sticky pictures. What would what would be your stickiest picture that that you've taken? What is the picture that you want to be stuck in everyone's minds? You want to be remembered for? I don't know. I, I really can't answer that. I have a million and a half images in my archive at Stanford. So I don't. I'm I'm not. I don't even have. I can't even tell you because. I'm going through pictures now from 10 years ago I never even saw, or 20 years ago that I never even saw. We would shoot it and ship it. And it takes me, on average, a year just to decide which pictures I like from a shoot I did today. Yeah. I'm How still processing decide? it. Well, I, I use an artificial part of me that's very um, trained um, from being on deadlines and submitting. You know, and that's based on, not me, that's not my internal clock, that's an audience thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we're shooting for... For Newsweek, you're shooting for three million readers at the day, back in the day, and so they're going to use a picture that's actually more to the lowest common denominator, that's quicker read, that's quicker and more compelling emotionally. I think for me, given the conflict I, I was explaining to you about being an artist versus telling a story for an audience, that's my biggest problem is what do I, you know, I'm always trying to ask myself what really is exciting for me versus what I know will work to reach mm-hmm. an audience. So I'm still working that out. I'd need, I need, I can't answer that, Susan. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> but, but I think it's fun when you ask about composition and I always tell like students in classes that learn the rules, like, you know, Dennis said, learn the rules and then experiment. You just go out and play. I don't think there is any reason not to break the rules. I don't, uh, I mean, one of my soapboxes on the podcast is that I don't think there are rules. <laughs> I just don't, I feel like it's, a, I feel like your job as a photographer is to fit all the things you want in the frame artfully, and and they're not going to be following leading lines or rules of thirds or any of that. You just need to get the things in there, and they have the right kind of balances between them. I don't know. It's. I don't think it can be taught that way. I think it would distract a beginner if they're thinking about things like rules of thirds or, you know, you just want to, sometimes the subject's in the center and sometimes the subject's off center. You know, that's a, that's a thing, but I don't say that it's, is it a third in, a quarter? Like, come on. That's like a, it's a kind of a ridiculous thing to put in someone's head. Just move it, move the subject around, move everything around, you know? But Ruben, sometimes you feel like it's also Monday, like Monday quarterback kind or Monday quarterbacking where you're like, oh, well, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to look at this picture again. And now it's kind of a third. So it's the rule of thirds. That's why I like it. <laughs> right. Is that fair to say? <laughs> That's why you're like, it's not a third. It's not a rule. You're already breaking it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I'm not. <laughs> I love this conversation because you're not wrong. You're not right. It's a process that everyone has to come to for themselves and what works for them. But I, I would differ in one sense in that photography is not different than carpentry or making swords 
in Japan, katana, there is craft. And to make a katana that's going to last a thousand years, you're folding shimani steel over and over and over. And there's a very specific way to do it, to have a really good sword that will cut through bodies. They measure, by, they measure the sword strength by, or sharpness by how many bodies you can cut through with one blow. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want a three-body sword, you got to have these certain things. That, that's and the like of swords. It's the like of swords. And I got to photograph a sword maker in Japan, and I learned this stuff. But I don't think I was going to say said, you watched a lot of Forged in Fire. <laughs> well, I should go to that now that, I, now that you mentioned it. But I think that's there's a craft element, and like every craft, you got there are step by step things you can do, and. But the mystery is, does composition matter for the viewer emotionally or some biologic reason that forms memory? We don't know. I have a theory that that is true, but I like to be challenged. I like to look at stuff that surprises me. I don't want to look at everything that's exactly rule of thirds or whatever. I just think that we have to, if you use those and you learn those, then you have to kind of put it in your the back of your mind and focus on what is important to you. Are, a pers- are you a person that's all about you know, surfaces and pristine objects, or are you about emotion and the mystery of what, it's, what it is to be human? I mean, what is it that really excites you? And so when you take out your iPhone and you're shooting your family, all that comes into play, you know, all of that comes into play. And you could take a class about composition and it may or may not help you, but um, I suspect that if people learn those techniques and then surpass it, go beyond that, like they put in their back pocket, it's something they could try mm-hmm. or they could use. I think it'll be useful for them. Interesting. It's like the basic vocabulary for a language almost. You, you kind of have some uh, yeah. key elements and then you can improvise or then you can make haiku. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, exactly. And I think I think it's incumbent on the on the photographer to push themselves and try different things. Like you said, Michael, you know, you don't want to think about that stuff you want to figure out what's important in the frame and then let things happen naturally but i think i think there is something to learning the craft i think that's what's missing in the digital side in fact i would challenge you on that because the the barrier to entry now is so low to to do photography that's reasonably you can actually look at it and see something that's astonishing and that has leveraged a lot of people that didn't know they had an eye didn't know they had creativity that's exciting. You know? Yeah. And it's sure it's killed my industry. So what? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I completely agree with you. It's like it, it, we're, we're on the dawn or we're like entering a renaissance of creative photography where everyone like literally everyone has a Leica practically in their pocket. And, yeah. You know, it's not a Leica, but they have a great camera and they just don't know anything. I'm like they need to learn from people like you who have walked around with a camera in their hand their entire lives because there's something to be learned that it it isn't you can put you can pick your iPhone up, but you do get better at it and you do learn. Yeah. And the um, problem with the iPhone for a photographer coming to the iPhone is learning the vocabulary of the iPhone because it's got different lensing, it's got different exposure issues. It's it's you know you really it's easier if you get an app and put it in manual and you can control it like a camera and it's easier to live with the limitations. But it also is the strength that it has built in auto everything. But for me, the reason I always liked M's and I always had an M with me even when I was shooting another brand. That's the Leica. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always had a Leica M because I would do street photography with that and it was a discipline because it's all manual 
and I had to remember to think before I lifted the camera, oh, I have to open up for this one that's coming up. I have to start focusing towards infinity for this one. I mm -hmm. have to think in terms of f-stop and shutter speed, and it has to be this quick because I'm lifting the camera, and that's what I'm thinking of it. And that's what the other thing about composition to fall, f finish up on that. You know, Cartier-Bresson said it's not enough to get the decisive moment. He actually said that. It's not enough. And he, he said the photographer has to put that moment within a pleasing graphic composition. So if you like his pictures, that's the way he looked at it, something graphic. And, and he was using probably Aristotle's mean, the golden rule thing. Mm -hmm. All right, we, we will come back to that idea. Is there, anything, <laughs> is, uh, so is there anything you wouldn't take a picture of? Like, do you no, have I a... put my camera down a lot. When I was ending my news career, I still have done some news, but I remember shooting like the hundredth person in a forest fire, lifting their family photos out of the ruined house, you know, and I just was like, you know what? I mean, the greater good theory is that, you know, you're bringing a story to the wider audience to help bring light to uh, help the situation or help injustice, if that's the case, you know, and, and to some degree you're invading privacy and the people don't necessarily realize the implications of the picture being taken of them in a tragedy situation. And I just, at one point, started to limit myself. And I guess it's part of growing older, you become, like, it was all about getting the picture because you'd be fired, you know, otherwise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and you're competing with all these other photographers. But I think as I got older, I was just like, this doesn't matter as much as the human being here. You know, I always felt that way, but that I really started to act that way. So it's not that there isn't something I wouldn't take a picture of. I mean, I photographed a C-section. I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm telling you, don't photograph that. <laughs> I mean, could you have taken Dorothea Lange's migrant worker, mo the mother? Like, would you have put your camera in her face in that horrible moment she's in? Or does that feel invasive? Everything is by the moment. You can't know what Dorothea Lange and that woman experienced, the eye contact to each other or how they were. There is so much that goes on in nonverbal communication and verbal communication. I go into sensitive situations my whole life. And the first thing you do, I mean, there's two ways to do it. You could try to get a picture because it's just happening and you get it. But when I do that, I immediately make eye contact and go to the person and start talking and explain what I'm doing or connect with them. I think if we're going to make a picture that's meaningful, I, I have this rule. If I'm going to, I actually do believe as the Maasai that I photographed for the cover of Day in the Life of Africa and beat out 300 photographers for that cover, the Maasai don't like to be photographed. They believe you're stealing their soul. And I kind of feel like that's pretty true. We're taking something. Therefore, for it to be meaningful, there must be something given in return. There has to be an exchange, in my mind, at least how I work. So that could be as simple as just introducing yourself, showing respect, hearing their story, finding out who they are. It might be a meal. It might be your life. You have to be willing to give it up to get. You've got to give it up, whatever it requires. I can give you one example if you want to, sure. want to hear. And yeah. I, I was assigned to shoot homeless people in Phoenix in 1986, something in there, for Fortune magazine. And... I flew down from San Francisco and checked in the hotel, got my stuff together and just jetted out to downtown, which was block after block after block after block of encampments, homeless encampments. It was the height of it. It was just madness. 
and there was a a man standing in um, a section of the tents, and I thought that was really interesting, and I didn't know what to do, and I just started to shoot a little bit because no one was I wasn't getting any negative vibes and tons of people had been through there so I just started to frame up a shot and this guy came up to me and said hey you know MF what are you doing here and uh he actually had a weapon he had a knife with him and he started to kind of grab my arm and was threatening me and I said oh I'm with the press I'm here to shoot the homeless story and tell the story and he goes oh yeah where's your press pass Hmm. And, I said, and I said, oh, I left it back in my hotel. Um, <laughs> and I could see his, his I, you know, I did a lot of drug stories, the Oakland drug wars and crack dealers. And I could just see he was just, pan- he was flying, you know. So I could sense in the moment that he wasn't really there. He was just as high as a kite. And I said, you know what, let me go back and get it. I'll come right back here and I'll show it to you. And he goes, okay, I'll be right here. And I get back in my rental car. And I drive back to my hotel and I get my press pass because I wasn't freaking lying. <laughs> I, I get it on the desk where I had left it and I drive right back and the guy's completely forgotten about me. And I go and find him and I show him my press pass. And like that, I'm in. He's my guide. Wow. And now I have a guide to the story and now I've made friends. So I think wherever you go in every community, there's somebody who's a leader who's, who's important in whatever that mini culture is. You have to figure that out and make connections with people. Um, you can only steal photos so much without having to give something back. You're going to get busted. You know, Do you so. think this is something that um, I think consumers with their iPhones may be learning about or have to kind of come up against, which is how invasive it is to have a camera pointed at somebody and that developing that kind of trust. I think they pull their cameras out all the time, but to get really good pictures, they need to confront what they're doing. Um, is that a, is that a thing? Do you talk to people yeah, about that? Yeah, I think that? it's a threat. I think it's a threat. When you take a camera now and point it at someone, especially a camera with a long lens, it's a threat perception now. It's 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 not even an invasion of privacy. They just don't know what you're pointing at them right away. And what and your agenda a, is. And what your agenda is. And if in your if you're in New York City, everybody has an agent, so it's like <laughs> they, they own their brand. Right? I mean, I'm telling you, anywhere in. I walked all five boroughs, and everybody is aware now. <laughs> so what's a photo on your wall right now that you took that you have up? That, oh, that I took? Yeah. Um, well, one is of what you took, and one is that you didn't take that you love. Oh, look, there's the Irwitz. You have some Irwitz up yeah. there. Wow. Jim Marshall. I'm doing this in reverse. Here's one of mine. A lot of Irwitz. That's interesting. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What is that picture? This is... Uh, young woman at the hacienda where they make tequila for in the for Eradura, uh when i was doing i did a four-year project about tequila as a symbolic way to understand mexican culture mm. um yeah elliot was kind enough to write the introduction to my last my most recent book fearless genius and it's been a, a real mentor and dear friend i'm i'm a i'm a huge elliot erwitt fan that's cool that i mean were were you a magnum photographer are you no no that was my goal that was my dream and dennis uh wanted me to consider it you know it maybe still have maybe it will still happen i just went in a different direction Mm -hmm. what makes them different well they're a commune i mean they're a collective and they they there is a financial burden that some photographers there feel some don't I think it's strength in numbers. I think it's a really, you have to look at the history, how they started to 
fight against publishers who are taking rights and trying to pay nothing. Uh, Magnum is the most important event in organizing photographers before the ASMP, you know, and the SMP and APA. These are all really important organizations because everyone wants our stuff for free and to crush us, basically. But I kind of found my own path, and there was an opportunity where I might have been able to go there, but I, I, um, I'm on a different path. Wow. That's good. Yeah. What is one word that makes your photos uniquely you or uniquely yours? I would hope it's uh, empathy. Oh, nice. I see that in your photos. I mean, there, there's a quote that I actually had pulled prior to this interview that I love that's, um, we're primates. We look for eyes, expression, and emotion in the human face. The face is how we connect with people. And I see, I see so much emotion and um, kind of connection with your subjects and your, and your images. There's a lot of empathy there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. This is great. I mean, Doug, I could talk Thank to you, you all day. This is, I mean, I don't, want, I don't want this to stop. Is that like a great date? I don't know. <laughs> I, I love you guys. You guys ask the best questions. We should talk all day. We should get on another conversation. But well, I can, love what you guys are doing. And I love that you're bringing conversations like this to people who are discovering photography. I think that's really important. We're at an amazing moment in history where everyone's got these cameras. And I think it brings up this question of, like, why do we take pictures? Not just how, but, like, what is worth photographing? What? Why are we even doing this? There's so much data. <laughs> I'll have to show you one more thing before I go. Let me okay. go to my studio here. This is what's on my wall that I see every morning. What is worth wow. doing? Nice. Love Love nice. Well, first and foremost, thank you, Doug. It has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. And please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, from Doug, send them a link. We thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music and all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>